It is so good to be with you this morning. I want to thank uh, Marsha and Helen and all the members of this congregation for this kind invitation to be with you. So that uh, you will understand that I am a Trinitarian in your midst. <laughs> I want you to know that I am very comfortable here. I was born in New York City, and my parents, right after I was born, moved to Syracuse, New York. And in those first year in Syracuse, my parents uh, had a considerable amount of tension and separated. And my mother took me and my two older brothers back to New York City. And as happens in many situations like that, several years later, my father got very ill, and my parents were reconciled. And to our distress, my brothers and I had to follow our mother to Syracuse, <laughs> away from the Bronx. And a few months after we arrived, my father died. And it was only then that we got a sense of what he had been doing in Syracuse, the kinds of projects and volunteer work that he had engaged in with a number of people and organizations in that city. And a few months after he died, two women came to our house and introduced themselves and wanted to see how my father's family was doing together and without him. And they were both universalists. And they suggested to my mother that it would be really great if I went to a camp that they ran in the Adirondacks. And of course, that camp was called Unirondack. <laughs> and it was there that I was introduced not only to universalists, but to Unitarians, for those historians in this space, you were just talking about merging when I went to that camp. And I even met a few ethical culturists. Right? And although they were not able to change my faith, they influenced me profoundly. And they influenced me in their understanding of what you just heard the young people hear about, the understanding that we are all human beings who must be respected, each and every one. I'm here this morning to say a word or two about cities, about urban politics, about urban economics, about urban ministry. And as I say these few words, I want you to reflect, picture your urban experiences. Those of you who live in cities, those of you who visit cities, those of you who are not sure if you are in a city or not. Right? 
imagine, remember, call up images of those places. A demographer a few years ago was attempting to describe the density of cities. And she came up with this wonderful image. If the entire American population was as densely settled as the population of Brooklyn, the entire population of the United States could fit in the boundaries of New Hampshire. All the rest of the country, all the rest of the 49 states would be open space. There are several definitions political, statistical, cultural, for urban, for city. But the definition that makes the most sense is the definition that involves being in close proximity to other people. It is when we walk out of our house and we can be pretty sure that we will see people who we are not related to. When we spend days and see hundreds of people who we do not know, we are in a city. Now, you can call that city a town like they do in Framingham. You can call that city a suburb like they do in so many communities around the cities of Boston and Cambridge and Somerville. But if you walk out your door and you see people in an ordinary day who you do not know who you are not related to, you are living in a city. You are having an urban experience. Cities, of course, because they have so many different kinds of people, because they are places that people come to because they choose to be there, and come to because they have no other option about where to go, have an incredible variety and diversity. And depending on the politics, the ideology, the religion of the teller of the description, the teller of the urban story, cities, are marvelous, and cities are wretched. At the beginning of the 20th century in the United States, a number of theologians, 
concerned about the state of the people in cities in the United States began to organize to find ways to alleviate the misery that they saw in those people's lives. And as they developed this theology that was connected to community rather than a theology connected to their individual experiences and lives, they came to call their work the social gospel. And they saw the city as a place that could be better. And one of those social gospelers was an Episcopal priest at a wealthy church in New York City, so wealthy that this Sunday, today, they are having a special service for all the people, members of that church, who died first class on the Titanic. <laughs> but he was convinced that the city could be more than all of the slums and poverty and unemployment that existed there in the early 20th century. And he wrote a hymn for those social gospelers. And it began, O holy city seen of John, where Christ the Lamb doth reign. And of course, it is a reference to the city in Revelation, that he could see that mythical city as being a model for the city that he wanted. And then he went on in another verse to say, O oh, shame to us who rest content while lust and greed for gain in street and shop and tenement wring gold from human pain. And bitter lips in blind despair cry, Christ hath died in vain. We are fascinated by cities because we are fascinated by people. We are fascinated by cities because of the advantage of being in crowds. We are fascinated by cities because of the creativity that comes from so many people, artistic people, being together, feeding on each other's talents to produce remarkable work. We are attracted to cities because they are crowded, and in the crowd, we can lose ourselves many times. And so when people want to change their lives, become something else, they come to cities. When people know who they are, but who they are frightens other people, they come to cities so that they can hide or maybe even find a few other people 
who frighten people just like they do. <laughs> and so when you do a history of homosexuals in the United States, of gays and lesbians in the United States, you do a history of neighborhoods like the South End in Boston, right, where no one knew they were there except them, who had bars that had no names on the doors. And they knew their way around, and they were protected, protected by their anonymity. And so, if you are going to work on strengthening people, if you are interested in having people be able to express themselves as they were made, if you are interested in people being able to be liberated, you don't go to the country. You come to the city because that is where they have come. That is where they have had to stay. That is where they choose to be. Boston's population is about 618,000 people. In 1950, it was 801,000 people and continued to decline until a low around 1980, and then began to increase again. In that time, Boston was described by policymakers in completely different ways in those 60 years. In 1950, it was described as overpopulated. It was described as a place with terrible housing. It was described as the place one should leave and leave to that new version of urban life that could not even have the word city in it, but they couldn't get rid of the word urban. The suburbs, the suburban life, and literally thousands of people left to this new development surrounding the city to be suburbanites. And those people who were poor, who were not able to do that in the city, they were criticized too. They were criticized for living in what was described as terrible housing, living in slums. So when the first urban renewal development was being planned in the west end of Boston, the city published a comic book that was given to all the children who went to public school. And the comic book talked about how unhealthy their neighborhood was, how their neighborhood had to be transformed, how they shouldn't be living in the housing that they were living in and prepared them for this renewal. Of course, the renewal ended up with them all moving to other neighborhoods in Boston, their neighborhoods torn down, and luxury housing 
government buildings and a few private commercial buildings built in their stead. Imagine all of this. Imagine the city. We live in the city. And what we are invited to in that life is to be intentional about all of these people who we are not related to. The opportunity of the city is the opportunity to engage with people that we do not know and people that do not look like us and people who seem not to be able to have the same views that we have of what to eat, of what to drink, of how to speak, of how to smell. We have that opportunity in the city. I'm a politician. Politics often polarizes people. Even politicians use the word politics to denote distasteful politics or to mean only partisan politics, as in we must move beyond politics. But a definition I use with young people which seems to work is politics is the process, informal or formal, of setting rules to keep things the same or to change things. Of setting rules to keep things the same or to change things. And we all participate in making those rules. And if you were all junior high school kids, like coming from the urban ministry in Roxbury to the State House, I would then ask you, when was the first time you did that? When was the first time you changed a rule? Do you remember the first time you changed a rule? I'm guessing, but I suspect it was a parent or a guardian who made the rule that you were able to get him or her to change. Your first conscious political act. As an elected legislator, my tasks are to sponsor, support, and revise legislation to respond to the immediate concerns of my constituents, to speak out on public policy issues and questions in ways that educate, support, and challenge my constituency. I am convinced <clears throat> that effective representation is mutual, a partnership between the representative and his or her constituents. I listen and debate learn and respond, suggest and lead, not in isolation, but with the authority that derives from my election and ongoing discussions and consultations with my constituents. This is politics, this is my politics, yet we are all politicians, and some of us are professional politicians. But don't forget your role as being a politician. Now, as an elected official, I am expected to have a special concern for the people who live in my district. They live in the South End, Fenway, and Roxbury neighborhoods of Boston. 
They are some of the wisest people in the world. They have re-elected me 13 times. <clears throat> now these people are my constituents. They form my constituency. I do not know all 40,000 of them, but they are my constituents. Organized, they can put me out of a job every two years. We all need to find a constituency. It is the constituency for those who value knowing people we don't know, who value being engaged with other people. It is the constituency of everybody else. Not just those close to us, not everyone we meet, and everyone we hear and read about, everyone, everyone we can imagine. You and I are committed to a special relationship with all the people of our communities and beyond, seeking and serving the best and the worst, the whole and the wounded, the richest and the poorest, the included and the outcast, as Christians say, seeking and serving Christ in all persons. That needs to be our constituency, everybody else. And what we have to do that work efficiently is the fact that there are lots of them all around us. And when there are lots of them all around us, we call that a city. The city all those people, our constituents. We are all politicians, some of us get paid. But in building that constituency of re understanding, identifying, working to build that constituency, we are all ministers and some of us are paid. to see and experience aspects of life in the city, to meet and begin to build relationships with individuals who are doing justice work in the city, to experience both the difficulties of and hopefulness in ministry in the city, to engage questions of justice in city life with particular attention to the realities of the evils, racism, unflaunted power, and their effects on city life, to foster greater connection with networks and individuals committed to justice. We are called to a special relationship with all human beings, for justice among all people, respecting the dignity of every human being, the world, everybody else, the other, they must be our constituency. A few years ago, in a heated debate in the House of Representatives on the budget and spending more money on human services, one of my colleagues stood up in opposition to this money being spent in this way and said, there are people in this chamber who want to give money to people they don't even know. <laughs> I said, Marie, can I put that on my campaign literature? 
In the 19th century, again to remind you that I am comfortable with Unitarians, in the 19th century, Theodore Parker taught Bostonians to look at the facts of the world. You see a continual and progressive triumph of the right. I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. Things refuse to be mismanaged long. Or as Martin Luther King liked to rephrase it, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. However, listen, that arc does not bend without our hands grabbing hold of it, without you and I joining in bending it towards justice. <laughs>